out of Hebrews 11 and into chapter 12. And I'm not a man of many words, but I do got a lot to say about this passage tonight. So we'll see how far we get. <laughs> Hebrews 12. One of my absolute favorite passages in the entire Bible. I probably say that about passages every single week, but this one really is my top. Along with Ezra 7.10. Hebrews 12. And please do turn, then we'll read that together, and then we'll pray. <clears throat> Hebrews 12.1. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. God's word, let's pray and ask him for his help to understand it. Lord, we do love you. We do confess our, again, as we do every week, our need for you. We confess our weakness. We confess our frailty. We confess our pride and thinking that we're not frail. We confess our sin, Lord, knowing that the cross is our only hope. Lord, we do ask for your help, Lord, that we would have endurance in the Christian life. Lord, I pray that we'd have endurance tonight as we study your word, as we do seek to apply it. Lord, I pray that you'd open up our hearts to your word, Lord, that it would penetrate deeply and it would expose sin that needs to be repented of, Lord, that we would glorify Christ in our lives and in our dying, and we do pray this all in Christ's name, amen. So two opening questions that we need to ask as we open up this passage and let's see if I have my, is there a PowerPoint there in the back? It'll come up, we don't need it just yet. But two opening questions that I want you to think about as we open up this passage. And the first one, very simple, who is he talking to? Who is the author of Hebrews at this point talking to? Who's his audience? Uh, when my friend Nate and I, when we were in Bible college, we would have chapel every day of the week. Some of you, who, who's from Christian school in this room? I know my wife was, Darren. So you remember having a chapel service probably every day of the school week. And that's what we had at our school too. And we had a running joke, Nate and I, where every time a guest speaker would come, invariably, or almost invariably, they would turn and say, turn to the book of Hebrews, chapter 12. And of course, they didn't coordinate with each other, so they just, they, they're college students, they're about to face the real world, they need this kind of help, let's turn to Hebrews 12. So it became a running joke with us that we would get in the chapel, and we would just both open up to Hebrews 12 if there was a guest speaker. We'd look and check, make sure we were there, and we were usually right. But the point is, in the original context, the author was not talking, you guessed it, to college students. Who was he talking to? Think about this. Who was the author talking to? I think you already know the answer. You've been studying with us through Hebrews all the way up to this point, most of you, and I think you already know the answer. Who was he talking to? This author is talking to mistreated Christians. He's talking to suffering saints. He's talking to people, part of the body of Christ, who are being persecuted. That's who he's talking to. 
He's talking to people not only who have faced that, but who are about to get even more mistreatment. There's more mistreatment that lies ahead for these believers. He's talking to people who are now at this point considering hanging it all up, being done with it. So I said already this is one of my favorite passages in scriptures, and I, I bet you it's one of yours too, and why is that? Because this passage is so encouraging, isn't it? It's an extremely encouraging passage. So by saying this was not written to college students, it was not written to Americans originally, but I'm not trying to take this passage away from you. I would never try to do that. I'm not trying to say it does not apply to you, because ultimately it does apply to college students. It does apply to high schoolers. It applies to moms. It applies to dads, firefighters, kids, office workers. It applies to believers. So I'm not trying to take this away from you, but here's why I'm making a big point about this. It's because when we get into the original context, this passage becomes even more encouraging than we originally realized it was. When we get back into the history and see what was going on and seeing who he's actually talking to. He's not talking to people who had it easy. He's talking to people who had mistreatment. And when we realize that, this becomes even more encouraging than we realize. So that's who he's talking to. Who he's talking to. Now think about what is he telling them to do? And if you're already there, go ahead and look. You can see it on the screen. What is he telling them to do? Therefore, that's a major hinge word, like a door turning on its hinges in the book of Hebrews. He's calling them now to action based on what he's already told them. And here's what he says next. He says, having the great cloud of witnesses. We just studied, we took six weeks to look at chapter 11 and see what he's talking about there. Then he says next, laying aside distractions and sins. And now look at here's the next statement is the heart of the passage. This is the heart of what he's telling us. He says, let us run the race. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. And then in verse 3 it says, consider him. So the author is using the metaphor of a foot race to illustrate the Christian life. In Greek, this race is the agon. What word do you hear when you hear the word agon? Agony. This is a contest. It's a competition. It's a struggle. It's a foot race that keeps going on and on and on. What kind of foot race? What do we call that here in the States? And a marathon, right? This is a marathon. This is faith's marathon. God is telling us in this passage that the Christian life can be and very often will be, not just tough, but it will often be agonizing. A great struggle. A marathon. And you see this word show up a lot in Paul's letters. You see it show up whenever he's facing enemies of the gospel. Don't turn there, but he tells the Thessalonians, he said, after we already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you, the gospel of God amid much, and he uses the word opposition, same word, agon, struggle. Contest. You see the same thing was he talking about the very basics of growing in the Christian life. He told the Colossian believers, he says, I want you to know how great a agon, I want you to know how great a struggle I've had for you on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea and for all those who have not personally seen my face. What's the struggle that he had in his heart? What was the agon? That their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love. The very basics of Christian growth. Encouragement. Growth together, unity, love for each other, the struggle that comes before that. And you see it in his discipleship of Timothy. Paul says, fight, agonize, 
The good agon, fight the good fight, same word. And you see it at the end of Paul's life. He told Timothy, you fight the good fight. Now he's saying, I have fought the good agon. I have fought the good fight. I've finished my course. I've done my ministry. So Hebrews in this passage is calling us to action. It's not time to hang back at this point. It's not time for a vacation yet. It's not time for a rest yet. It's time to run. But in this passage, he's not left us without help. He's telling us how to do it. And it's extremely simple. Three very simple instructions that this passage is going to give us to tell us how to run the race and how to finish well. Preparations, pace, perspective. Three simple instructions. Have the right preparations, the right pace, and the right perspective. So let's dive right in and see, number one, the right preparations. Preparations. What preparations should you make for this race? And he's going to answer the question. Now think about an athlete for a second. When you have a, just a, an athlete, he's getting ready to do something big, some kind of contest. There are things about him, things that are unique to him that he has to strengthen, right? Things that he needs to cultivate, get better at practice. And then at the same time, there are things he needs to get rid of. Things that need to stay, things that need to go. And that's what's happening here too. This takes training, discipline, self-denial, and the same goes for spiritual athletics. If you want to use that analogy, spiritual athletics. There are things that we have right at our disposal that simply we're too lazy to cultivate. And then there are things that we do have that we're not willing to get rid of. And that's what's happening here in this passage. The flesh wants it, but if you keep it, you're not going to make it through the race. It's going to cost you the race. So let's see first what we have that needs to play a greater role. You see it on the board. Preparation number one, make a conscious, concerted effort to take encouragement from the believers of the past, the believers that we just saw from chapter 11. The text says, therefore, that's our hinge word, but before he goes any further, before he gives them new material, what does he do? He reminds them of what he's already told them back in chapter 11. He says, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses, and who's that? All the men and women of faith that we just learned about. So he's saying, don't forget about what we just talked about. Those examples of faith are going to be absolutely essential for your preparations. You can't afford to overlook them. So the question is, why are these men and women so important? We answered it. We started to answer it last Sunday night, but now we're going to see even more. Why are they so important? Now, the easy answer, the, the initial answer we would give is to say they can empathize with us, right? We can look back and say, we know what, they know what we went through. They can empathize with us. So here's where people take the analogy, the sports analogy, the wrong direction. Here's what often preachers do with this text. They say that there's a big group of heroes of faith, and they're sitting up in the grandstands, and they're watching you run around on the track, and they're cheering you around, saying, you can do it, you can make it, you can go. That's how people usually use this analogy, but I think it's a wrong understanding of this text. It's still a sports analogy, but it's not that they are in the bleachers. It's that we have all of their old tapes. We have all of their old games, and we have them on file. It's not them watching us. It's us watching them. We can watch their plays over and over again. We can do it in slow motion. We can do it in rewind. We can do it in freeze frame. We can do all these things, every single grueling detail they went through. We can see it pace by pace. And then it makes us ask the question, how did they do it? That's the natural question we ask when we see it. 
And chapter 11 told us over and over and over again, what was the answer? Faith. Now, here's what we need to think even more carefully about this. How exactly was their faith an encouragement to us? Think about this. We brought this up last week. But it wasn't just an average faith. It wasn't like the you know, faith, family, and friends that everyone has at Thanksgiving. It wasn't like that. This was a remarkable faith. They were still under what covenant at this point? They were still under the old covenant. We're talking about the people of Hebrews chapter 11. They were still under weak human priests. They were still under an, a covenant that was going to become obsolete and be replaced by a new covenant. They were still, at this point, shut up under sin. They looked ahead to the day of Christ, and what were they? They were glad. They looked ahead to the time, to the fullness of time, when Christ would be born of a woman, born under the law, so he could redeem those who were under the law. They looked ahead to that time. That's the kind of faith they had before Christ ever came, before he ever stepped foot on this earth. They looked ahead, saw his day, and they were glad, and they had full faith in what he would do. So that's something way more than empathy, isn't it? Something way more than them just sympathizing with us. This is them having such a strong faith that they could look ahead to what Christ would do. So the point is, and as it turns back on us, how much more could we have faith? We have the Christ. We are living under the new covenant. We have the blessings. We have the promises. How much more are we able to have that same kind of faith? That's what we're left with. So we look to the men and women of faith. We make a conscious, concerted effort to look back and get real encouragement from them. Preparation number two. Lay aside all distractions. Lay aside all distractions. Almost every morning, I, actually just about every morning, even if it's raining, I can look out my window mid-morning and I can see the same guy running down the road for exercise, faithfully, always running. And now what he's doing is he's putting this weighted vest on. And why is he doing that? wants to train, right? He wants to experience what's like to have a little more weight, wants to get stronger. Now, do you think he was going to run a 26-mile race? Is he going to wear that vest with him? Is he going to bring that with him? Do you think he's going to do that? No. Easy answer. That vest is for training. It's for, for discipline. So now the author of Hebrews is taking us to the next step. Before a race is going to be run, before a runner is going to start moving, he's going to try to get rid of all of the training weights. He's going to put them all aside. He's going to try to get rid of excess Body weight, he's going to try to do all those things. He's going to prepare. He's going to lay aside anything that can slow him down, lay aside any distraction. So it says, let us also lay aside every encumbrance, every weight, every bulk, every burden, any impediment. You've got to put them all aside. You see this word lay aside? is a graphic illustration with the stoning of Stephen. And back in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 7, they drove Stephen out of the city, it says, and they began stoning him. And the witnesses, they laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Remember that story? Same word, they laid aside their robes so they could get to business and stone Stephen. Anything that would restrict our movement, they got rid of it so they could do their job. And it's the same in the race of faith. There are things that we need to lay aside if we're going to run well. And there will be points throughout your Christian life when even, listen to this, even when good things need to go. Or things that are not necessarily evil in and of themselves that need to go. And I can illustrate with this a personal, illustrate this with a personal experience. I'm going to use this on purpose 
because it's an experience that I'm pretty sure none of you have ever struggled with. But I was addicted to BMX riding whenever I was a teenager. I could not do anything but think about that. When I would wake up, I would think about it. I would think about it while I did my school. After school, I would go and do it. After the sun went down, we would find a place that's lit where we could go do that. And then at bedtime, I would look at magazines and get ideas for the next day. That's, that's how I live my life. I was a believer at the time. And eventually, the Lord tapped me on the shoulder. Or maybe it was a little bit more stronger than that. And I woke up. He woke me up. I said, this really has to go. And it was a major distraction to me in my walk with Christ. Now, I say that because I'm sure that's something that none of you have ever struggled with. Anyone ever struggled with BMX riding in here? I don't think so. I say that because this kind of principle that we're talking about, where you're telling other Christians to even let good things go, it can turn into legalism very quickly. And here's how it works. Someone could say, activity X, or Y, or Z, whatever it is. Activity X was a cause of stumbling to me. And then that person turns over and says, you are involved in activity X. And then comes the conclusion, therefore, you're not going to grow in Christ as long as you're doing activity X. Have you heard that kind of legalism before? That is not what this passage is saying. This is saying that anything for you in particular that's causing you to stumble in the race, you've got to let it go. And then you leave the log and the speck, Matthew 7, we talked about this morning. And think about this. Don't be so prideful to think that whatever is causing you to stumble is necessarily going to cause somebody else to stumble. Don't be so prideful to think that. So there you have it. I don't want to give you any more details because it's now up to you. The ball is in your court. I have no idea what is going to cause you to stumble, but there are probably good things in your life that you do need to consider letting go so you can run the race more freely. 1 Corinthians 9, Paul said, everyone who competes in the games, everyone who agonizes, it says, he exercises self-control in all things. An athlete has to have self-control, and not just in one area of life. He can't just train really well and then eat however he wants, or never sleep. He has to be a whole person, disciplined in all areas of life. And it is biblical and appropriate that we keep careful watch on our lives that nothing comes between us and our Christ. In 1905, there was a preacher named Charles Tendley. He was writing a sermon in his study, and a gust of wind came and blew some papers over his Bible and over his study notes and things like that, and he thought, that's a really good illustration. So he ended up writing a song that some of you have probably heard. And I'll tell you, tell you one of the verses. He said, nothing between like worldly pleasure, habits of life, though harmless they seem, must not my heart from him ever sever. He is my all. There's nothing between. Heard that song before? Some of you have. So put aside distractions. This is something that the Lord has told us to do, and if he's told us to do it, he's going to give you grace to do it if you ask him. So there's something else, though, something else in this text that if we hold on to it, we're going to be spending more time in the medical tent than actually on the racetrack. And that's preparation number three. Lay aside sin. Lay aside sin. Verse 1 also says, let us lay aside the sin which so easily entangles us. Now, did you hear that? It said, the sin. The sin. 
And here you go. This is going to tell you that one sin that if we all repent of, you're going to be okay, right? Is it going to tell us that? It's what we've all been waiting for. You don't have to look outside, though, this verse to get your answer. It's right here in the verse. What is the sin in this verse? It is the sin that easily entangles. That's what it tells us. There you go. It's the sin that entangles you. What sin is that? Don't ask me. Ask your heart. I'm actually very glad this verse doesn't tell us what the sin is, aren't you? Because if it did announce the sin, you'd all say, yeah, I think I'm pretty good on that one. And you check out and you say, yes, I was really getting scared that this was going to be addressing me. But it does address us. He does not have just one sin in mind. He has the individual sins that crouch at each one of our doors. Those particular sins that ensnare us, that trip us up, that cause us to fall in the race, to get our knees bloodied up and our wrists sprained and worse. So this right here is a call to repentance. We repent of known sin first. Sin that we know is right there at our door. Sin that we know needs to be taken care of. We repent of that. We turn to the Lord. We know that we'll find forgiveness in Him. He's faithful and just to do that. Then we ask God to reveal hidden sin. This is also our responsibility before God to work this out. Psalm 139, make this your prayer where it says, Search me, O God, and, O God, know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. This is a prayer that God would reveal our hidden sins, sins that have been hidden from our own gaze and that we would see them and that we would turn from them, that we would repent of them. The next thing we need to do here is take ownership of our sin. Remember what we talked about at the beginning. Who was this verse talking to originally? In the original context, who was this verse talking to? Suffering Christians. Think about that. He's telling suffering Christians to repent. Is that harsh? Is that unfair? Think about that. He's telling persecuted believers to repent. This is very important. This contest, this agonizing race, did not just involve persecution by people who hated Christ. It also involved a struggle with their own sin. People very often view their suffering as one of the greatest excuses to indulge in sin. When a big problem comes your way, you say, this is it. This is the best excuse I've ever had to do now whatever I would like to do. This is one of the greatest excuses that comes up in our minds. You say, when you're in those circumstances, when you're in those shoes, you say, everything is terrible for me right now. Nothing is going right. Everything is wrong. And then you say, how could it get any worse? Therefore, I'm going to indulge in whatever I've been wanting to do all along, and it's not going to get any worse for me. I'll tell you what Hebrews says, how it's going to get worse. If you trample... Christ under your feet, there no longer remains a sacrifice for your sin. That's how it gets worse. So take ownership of your sin. Don't blame it on your circumstances. And the way this is going to work is this. Be satisfied with the joy set before you. 
We'll talk about this more in a minute. But to lay aside your sin, there has to be a satisfaction. There has to be a commitment to the finish line, to something else that's beyond us right now, something else that's set before us. It has to be a commitment to the joy, the satisfaction that God offers us in Christ. So those are the preparations. Now let's look at number two, the pace. What pace should we keep in this race? It's not a sprint. It's a marathon. The verse tells us. What does it say? How do we run this race? What instruction does it give us? Two words. Let us run with endurance. The race that is set before us. The part of the Christian life when people need the most discipleship is when they hit the wall, the proverbial wall, when they learn finally by experience that the Christian life is not a sprint, when they truly learn, oh yeah, this is a marathon. That's when they need the most discipleship, and that's exactly what the author of Hebrews is doing for them right now. He's coming in to their lives and saying, run it with endurance. It's not a sprint. It's not a walk in the park. It's a grueling competition. So here we need to be realistic about our limitations first. We we do need to be realistic about our physical human limitations. You've heard the slogan, I would rather burn out than rust out. Amy Carmichael said things to that effect. George Whitfield said things to that effect. Other people in church history, I'm sure I've thought it in my heart. I'd rather burn out than rust out. I'd rather burn out for Jesus than wear out on a couch somewhere. Think through this. We need to be realistic about our limitations. John Owen, you've heard of John Owen. We've talked about him before on Sunday nights. Great scholar, great theologian from the past. Solomon said that the writing of many books is endless and excessive devotion to books is wearing to the body. And that's exactly what happened to John Owen. He spent hours, he didn't sleep much, he studied and studied and studied for years and years and years, and at the end of his life he would go and tell people, it's reported that he would go and tell people that he would willingly part with all of the learning that he accumulated by staying up all those long hours, by spending all that time, he would gladly give it up to get his health back. That's what John Owen reportedly said toward the end of his life. George Whitfield, I've been reading uh, a biography of him and seeing some of what he said in his diaries. Here's a little sample. Wednesday, April 4th, he said that he preached to hundreds. And then in the afternoon, after a horseback ride, in the evening, several thousands were ready to hear him. And he preached to several thousand. That's Wednesday. Thursday, April 5th, that he preached in the courtyard. Next day, Friday, horseback from about 8 in the morning to noon, and he preached again. And the evening came, and he preached for another 45 minutes. And at that point in his journal, he said, but I could not speak with such power as usual. Hmm. For though the spirit was willing, the flesh was weak through the fatigue of the past day. Who would have thought? And, and then his diary from April just keeps going on and on the same way. John Calvin, same thing. He preached all the time. It's reported he preached almost every day. He wrote the Institutes. He wrote tracts. He wrote, he wrote letters. Then Lloyd-Jones said, both Calvin and Whitfield, he said, they ended their earthly course round about the age of 55. See, these two men who did such stupendous work both died in their middle 50s. Who would have thought? Big surprise, right? Robert Murray McShane, he said, God gave me a message to deliver and a horse to ride. And he said, alas, I have killed the horse, and now I cannot deliver the message. 
I'd rather burn out than rust out. Our parents didn't ship us here from Krypton. We have limits. Now everyone's ready for a vacation, right? Oh, yes, the Bible says, now it's time to take it easy. Who's ready for a vacation? Let's go. Start tomorrow. Wake up, don't go to work, just take your vacation for at least a week, right? This is where it turns on us. What is, again, the author calling us to do? Let us rest. He says, let us run. It's time to run. He said earlier in Hebrews, let us be diligent to enter that rest. This is work. It's not vacation time. We also need to point out, look at the word us. We need to run it together. It says, let us run. I don't think it's a coincidence. I don't think it's an accident. I think it's strategic that the author didn't single out just one person and say, this person needs to do it, like maybe in 1 Corinthians where he singles out one person. He didn't exclude himself either. He said, all of us. We run it together. We saw that back in chapter 10 too, where we encourage each other, where we do this together. We do this hard work as a body of Christ. I was watching the Tour de France. It's a few minutes of it with Mike and my dad. Well, we were supposed to have a meeting, but I kept looking up at the TV. And I noticed they were getting further along in the race. They were getting uh, tired. They were getting weak. They are going uphill. And I noticed there were some people designated. They were on the sidelines. And they kept running out and going to individual riders, and they'd push them. And they would run along, pushing them for, for several yards to give them that extra boost. They're doing it together. And we do this together as the body of Christ. So we've seen the preparations, we've seen the pace, now we need to see the perspective, and this is the key. This is the most important part of this section. In verses 2 through 3, the perspective. Anyone in this room ever done on a long-distance run? Anyone ever when you were a teenager do long-distance running? I did a little bit when I was a teenager, I don't do it anymore. But have you ever been to the part where you're just really tired, you want to give it up, and then you use a little, little uh, tool, a little, little trick to get you going. And you see, I'm going to make it to, to the door at the end. And if I can get there, then I think I'll be okay. But then you make it to the door and you say, well, I think I can see the shed, so I'm going to make it all the way to the shed. Have you ever done that before? We have to have some kind of end goal, don't we? We have to have something ahead of us, something beyond just the feet in front of us and the gravel around us, but something up ahead that we can look forward to and say, I'm going to get there. We have to have some kind of perspective outside of our immediate circumstances. That's, how, that's the only way we're going to be able to make it through. So what perspective does the author of Hebrews tell us we need here to run the race of the Christian life? Verse 2, it tells us in very simple words, fixing our eyes on Jesus. This is undistracted attention on Christ. This is having affections that are dedicated to Christ. This is having your eyes focused directly on Christ at the finish line. You've made the right preparations, and now there's nothing in the way. There's no alternate path. The only way to persevere in the Christian life is to have your eyes fixed on Christ. Your focus on Christ is going to be directly proportionate to your perseverance. They go hand in hand. Christ is the answer, but we need to see exactly how he's the answer in this context. We'll see five reasons briefly. Five reasons why we need to have a Christ-centered perspective. First is that Christ started our faith. He started it. The text said he's the author of faith. He also translated as the pioneer 
He's the trailblazer. He's the one who started everything that we're doing even tonight. He started this. He's the one who went before us and started our race. Back in Hebrews 2, it said, It was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, and bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author. Same word, pioneer, trailblazer. To perfect the author of their faith, of their salvation, I'm sorry, through sufferings. He's the author of our salvation. He started it. He's the originator of it. Hebrews 6, same thing. This hope we have is an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters in within the veil, where Jesus has entered, a different word, but it says as a forerunner for us. Same concept. Chapter 10, it said that he inaugurated a new and living way through his death. He started it. He inaugurated it. He's the pioneer. He's the author. Now, he started our faith, but will he finish it? It's the next question. Will he finish the job? Number two, number two reason of a Christ-centered perspective is that Christ will finish our faith. It says that he's not just the author of faith, but he's also the perfecter of faith. Movements and events throughout history, they've come and gone, right? And so have their leaders. Where is Adolf Hitler today? Buried in a grave. Where is Napoleon Bonaparte? Still taking over countries, right? No. Dead and gone. Where's Muhammad? Still leading his people? Praying for his people? Mm-mm. He's dead and gone. Where's Joseph Smith? Still helping? Still giving revelations? Still leading? He's gone. All these men are in hell. They were around to start things, but they are not around to finish them, and they never will be around to finish them. They will never come back. But God tells us in his word that Jesus is able also to save forever those who draw near to him. Since, because, why is he able to do that? He always lives to make intercession for them. He's always around. He started our faith. He's going to finish our faith. Reason number three. Christ endured the greatest shame the world has ever seen. Think about the shame of the cross. I know you've heard this in songs. You've thought about it yourself. You've heard it in sermons, but think about it again. Jesus, the Son of God, the creator of the world, being mocked by the nation of Israel, the people that he chose to be the special people of God, the people that he had been leading ever since their time in Sinai and ever since before then, he had been taking care of them, and they mock him, and they put him to death on a cross. And then he gets the Roman punishment that only the lowliest criminals would deserve. And he gets beaten. He gets stripped publicly. The shame. But he endured. Now the theme of endurance becomes even more clear. You see it three times. It says, let us run with endurance. It says he endured the cross. And verse 3 says he endured hostility. He endured. But how did he do it? What does the text say? He was fully committed to joy. He was fully committed to the joy that the Father had set before him. He fully knew what was going to happen. He knew the glory that was going to follow. He had already prayed about that in John 17. He knew about the glory. He knew he was going to be restored to the glory that he eternally enjoyed with the Father and with the Son. He knew it was going to happen. It was all right in front of him. He focused on the joy set before him. He focused on what was ahead. He was also fully committed to the Father's plan. He despised the shame. 
something that Jesus simultaneously endured and despised all at the same time. We need to explain this word despised as well. It means to consider something as not important. Consider something as unimportant when you compare it to something else. When you see those two things put together, you say, this is nothing. I'm going to disregard this. I'm going to ignore that. It's nothing compared to what I see right here. That's what that word despise means. He wasn't an angsty teenager. Man, I hate this. He didn't do that. That's not what Christ did. He was so committed to the Father's plan that he could disregard all the shame involved so that he could focus on the glory that was to come. He despised the shame. We endure as we see his endurance. So Christ is an example to us in this passage. Not only that, Christ is the greatest example for us. But aren't you thankful that he's not just an example? Isn't that the best news in the world, that he's not just an example for us? He's something much deeper than just an example. There's something more. Our endurance is vitally connected with his. Reason number four, Christ accomplished joy for us. He did it. He accomplished something whenever he endured the cross and despised the shame. He did something. He finished something. He accomplished something for us. It says he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Mission accomplished. Joy accomplished. So it's not just Jesus did this. You can do it too. That's not it. It's Jesus secured the joy for everyone who makes it to the finish line. Jesus bought it. He finished it. And now the joy is set before us. So as we wrap up, you say, okay, I think I tried to do all that, but I don't seem to be getting very far. And now I'm tired. I'm tired at the core of my being. All the zeal that I had is gone. And I'm not sure it's worth it to do this anymore. Last reason we'll see here in the text to have a Christ-centered perspective, is that Christ strengthens us at the deepest possible level. I want you to get this. The deepest possible level where we can be strengthened, where we can be encouraged, that's where Jesus strengthens us. Have you ever wondered why the Psalms are so encouraging? Have you ever wondered why, whenever you're going through a struggle, you can turn to almost any Psalm. Out of all 150, you can turn to almost any of them, and you can just... Oh, I don't always recommend this to do the flip and point, but you can point to almost any psalm and you can be encouraged, can't you? Why is that? Why is that? I believe it's because it addresses questions that no one else ever does. It addresses the questions that are deeper than anyone ever gets to. It addresses the soul, doesn't it? It addresses the core of our being, the core of our issues, the core of our problems. It shows us the pain that we have in our souls. And I'll just remind you of a few phrases. Psalmist said, my soul is greatly dismayed. But you, O Lord, how long? Return, O Lord, rescue my soul. Why are you in despair, O my soul? Why have you become disturbed within me? My soul is in despair within me, it says. Our soul has sunk down into the dust. My soul is among lions. My soul is bowed down. My soul has had enough troubles. I'm done. My soul weeps because of grief. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. My soul languishes for your salvation. Bring my soul out of prison. That's the cry of the psalmist. 
shows us the pain down deep that nothing else can address. But it also shows us the deliverance that only the Lord can give. Psalm 23, what does our shepherd do? Restores our soul. What does the law of the Lord do? It's perfect. What does it do? Restores the soul. I will rejoice and be glad in your loving kindness because you have seen my affliction. You've seen what's going on in my life. You know my problems, Lord. You have known the troubles of my soul. You know it. He has satisfied the thirsty soul. The soul that thirsts for God, for the living God, he has satisfied it. And the hungry soul, he has filled with what is good. When our soul thirsts, when our soul hungers, he fills it. You may have good physical health, you may have fine sleep patterns, you may have a great diet, you may be everything going on great in your life, but down deep in your soul, you've given up. Down deep in your soul, your zeal is gone. It's dried up, and you don't know where to turn. You don't know how to get back that joy that you once had. That's what this text offers us. It offers us soul help. In the Christian life, sometimes you feel like you can't even make it to the next day or take the next step or even maybe even roll over the finish line. This is a soul problem. No, no physical factors are going to make it go away. No prescription is going to make it go away. No psychiatrist, no psychologist. Nothing is going to be able to help us but Christ himself. The cross in this verse is the answer. And look back at verse 3. In verse 3, the text literally says to consider Christ so that you will not become, this is how it's literally translated, fatigued in your souls, giving up. We consider Christ so that you will not wear out in your soul and just give it all up and hang it all up. Consider Christ so that that will not happen. That's the promise. That's the, what God has told us we can bank on. And what's it saying to consider about Christ in verse 3? Imagine the Son of God enjoying eternal glory and coming down here and being spit on by people that he created to enjoy him. And rather than getting their worship, he's getting their strongest concoction of hostility they could come up with. That's what he gets here on this earth. It says, consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself. That's what it says to consider, to think on, to meditate on. That's what you should have on your mind while you're being mistreated by Christ's enemies, by, while you're struggling with your sin. Consider the hostility that Christ faced. Much of our discouragement comes from not getting things that we think we deserve. Or you say, I'm beyond that. Say, I know I don't deserve them. I know I'm a sinner saved by grace. I know I don't deserve it. But I still don't see a reason why I shouldn't have it. And we meditate on those thoughts. You say, my friends have it, but I don't. What's that kind of thinking going to do when you're meditating on those kind of thoughts? When you're considering those kind of thoughts? What's that going to do to your soul? It's going to drain. It's going to drain it out. It's going to dry it up. So those are some reasons the text gives us for having a Christ-centered perspective. Simple application to start. Probably way too simple. Probably way oversimplified. Probably cheap, but start here. Don't spend your time thinking about why other Christians have it easier than you. Don't spend your time, don't meditate on, always thinking about why other Christians have it easier than you do. That's not going to help a bit. Think about how much time you spend every week doing that. How, you spend, how much time you spend every day thinking about how other Christians might have it easier than you do. Why not do that? One reason, you probably have no idea what's actually going on in their souls. You really do have no clue. There are trials going on there, the pains they have that no one else might even know about. 
And you're never going to make any progress in holiness, never make any progress in perseverance as long as you complain about God's unique providence in your life. You're never going to make any progress. So devote a significant part of each day exclusively to Christ. You say, how long? Mike said, three hours. How long? How long is a significant part of your day? Significant. Make it a significant part. That's the key. Remembering his work, spend this time remembering his work, remembering what he's accomplished, remembering what he went through in order to accomplish it, and then thanking him for it. And this will help us to keep from giving up. Now think about as we close what giving up will look like. Giving up would look like this. Not taking care of the preparations. Not dealing with any of the encumbrances. Not dealing with any of the entanglements. Not dealing with any of the sins. That's what giving up would look like. Not giving up will look, will look like not keeping the right pace. Thinking that the Christian life is a sprint. Giving up will be forgetting what Christ has done to secure our redemption, to secure our joy. Giving up would be thinking that your life is harder than everyone else's and meditating on that. Giving up would be letting the cares of the world take over. Giving up would be stopping it all because you keep getting the same pitiful results over and over again. Say, I'm done. Giving up would be, I'm tired of being rejected. Tired. Giving up would be because you think it's a lot harder than you thought it would be. The Christian life is much, much harder than I thought this was ever going to be. Maybe you were successful in everything else in life. Your careers, your schooling, your jobs, all these things. And you think the, the Christian life is going to be just like those other Philistines. But it's not. It's a marathon. It's something you don't have the strength to do on your own. The Christian life is not a trade that we master. It's a battle to fight. It's a field to sow. It's a marathon that we endure. Let's ask God now in prayer time to give us his help, to help us focus on Christ this week, to make this part, this verse, these three verses, a vital part of our Christian life. Let's pray for his help. Lord, thank you for the day you've given us. Thank you for the Lord's Day, where we can start it with you and we can end it with you. Lord, I pray that the things that we heard today would not get uh, picked up. Lord, that they would be sown deep in our hearts. Lord, that we would apply what we've heard. Lord, that we would love Christ more tomorrow than we did today. And Lord, that we would keep our focus on him, fix our eyes on him and what he's done for us. We pray this all in Christ's name.